I'm Dave, and uh, it's good to be here. I'm glad some of you shortened your uh, vacation so you could be here this morning because you heard I was speaking. So uh, thank you. Uh, Those that weren't able to be here, I know they were planning on downloading it anyways. Um, Probably, you know, have several different uh, times that they'll listen to it on the road. So I'm convinced, you know, God's Word will go forth. No, uh, it is really a privilege to be here at Lakewood. What we're talking about this morning, um, I'm excited to talk about because... I think it gives us some hope. It gives us a feeling that I have, I have grace, the, the grace of God in me to do something with it as well. I think oftentimes when we come in, we feel as though I, I shouldn't even be coming in these doors because, you know, I don't feel worthy. I feel like everybody else is better than me. Uh, they're doing a better job. And I hope when you leave this place, you feel as though there are some things that you can do from this passage that we'll be looking at and discussing this morning. That you'll feel as though, you know what, yes, that relates to me. And so my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will work on your heart and open it up to what he has to say to you this morning. I want to just ask this question. How, you know, think of a time. It might have been really recent. It might be quite a while ago and it just kind of is uh, kind of burned into your memory of a time where you were extended grace or forgiveness by somebody. So I want you to take, just think about that for a moment. And then I want, you to, I want to ask you this question, how did it feel? Did you feel relieved? Like, oh, finally I can have this fixed. Finally I can, or, or maybe you're just thankful, like, wow, I, I didn't deserve that and they were willing to do that. Or maybe some of you have been in some broken relationships and you feel as though this is the first step toward restoration. Well, grace is about all those things. And so this morning, I'm hoping that as we delve into this, we we get a sense of what the cross, which we've been singing about, has to do with God's grace, His mercy, His compassion, His love, and His forgiveness. Well, last spring, um, our small groups and student ministries, uh, we, we had these seven seven different topics. And one of the topics toward the end of the year was on fellowship. And, uh, and so we were looking at fellowship and, uh, what, what was that like in the church? What did it mean to truly be in fellowship? Because we, we felt there was more than getting donuts between hours, that, that there's something more than a handshake in the service, that, that fellowship was deeper than that. And so it was interesting that as we looked at it, um, one of the comments that was kind of made and brought up in it was, it was our ability, or it was interesting that we saw that the church stood out because of the way it extended grace and forgiveness to one another. And then kind of as a byproduct of that to the world. I think many churches, and I think including Lakewood, has really, we've seen that. We've seen a lot of people that extend grace and forgiveness to people that have been wronged. And I, but I think we also see many churches, and at times our church, that can become very judgmental and condescending. And so we've got to be careful. There's a, there's a, there's a pattern that can, uh, or habits that can be kind of you know, brought up in that. And so hopefully this morning you'll get an opportunity to kind of see how they intersect with our own lives. Well, I was at Menards on Friday, and don't judge me, don't judge me. It was at 10 a.m., okay? It was later. I wasn't there when the doors opened or anything like that. If you were, that's okay. Um, 
But I was standing in line when I overheard the short conversation. One gentleman asked this other uh, guy that was in line, and he was there with his son. And uh, he just asked him, hey, so what did you do for Thanksgiving? And, and it was just kind of interesting because the one other guy that was asking the question then said, well, did you go to church? Did you, you know, have family in town? I thought, go to church? I don't always think of that as something you necessarily do around Thanksgiving. I know I do, but, you know, so I don't know if the two men even knew each other. Um, and so, but the guy's response is what caught me. And he wasn't as though he was trying to whisper it to the guy because there's plenty of noise. And he says, no, we don't go to church. Those people are way too judgmental. I was like, okay, that wasn't exactly what I was looking at there. But I thought, oh, how sad. But what he followed it up was even a little bit more odd. It wasn't as though he was anti-church because he goes, but it is the house of God. Man, I would have loved to take some time with him and his son just to say, hey, where, how, how did that happen? Because I think sometimes we come in these doors and, and uh, we can feel judged by people. People look at us because of the way we talk, the way we um, go about things, uh, you know, the, the way we look and those kind of things. And I think there's others that can come through that door as well that are being convicted by the Spirit and they do feel kind of judged and so I think there's times where we've got to kind of try to figure out what that is, but I think I understood what this guy was saying. The sad part was as his son was standing there, hearing what his dad had to say about the church. And I thought, ah, oh, you know, that son may have never seen that judgmental stuff, but that's what he's going to think the church is all about. So the past week, this past week, I was down at a conference and uh, at a workshop and uh, I went to this workshop that was discussing the influence of music and entertainment on our teens. And the presenter showed a video of a song called Take Me to Church. If you were, the only, if you were to only know the song from the radio or maybe the LeBron James workout uh, you know, commercial that he had, it's got a catchy sound to it. From the lyrics, you'd probably, if you read them, you'd go, that's a bit confusing because it just seems kind of disjointed. But I always am interested in what this workshop uh, presenter said. Is he says, you know, you need to look at the heart of the artist because music and, and entertainment now are so closely tied. You may not know the words, but then you may watch the video and all of a sudden there's this image. And in this video, the music video, the artist basically admonishes the church and its people for how they've judged and are unloving to those in same-sex relationships. If you were to play the song, you would never get that from it, but you watch the video and you see what the artist thinks of when he wrote the song and how he wanted to address an issue that he saw. There was not one church nor a cross even shown in the video, but it was very clear what was going on. Well, I start with all this to get us ready for the passage that we'll look at this morning. I think it'll challenge us uh, to be people full of grace and forgiveness that don't render judgment on people, but love people as Jesus loved people. This morning we're also going to look, look at one of the many parables that are in the Bible. Parables are not only used by Jesus in the New Testament, there's many of them that are in the Old Testament. Parables are easy to remember. I can bet if I asked you, hey, to name three to five parables, most of you could probably come up with several of them without too much difficulty. So, so even though they're easy to remember, 
they can be very difficult to live out. And it's because they demand so much. You know, Jesus was an amazing storyteller and he could talk to people at a small intimate event or address them in a large group along the shores of the Sea of Galilee out in a boat. He'd often be speaking to his disciples along the road or, or taking on a, answering a tricky question from the Pharisees. But as you know, great storytellers know how to describe the facts and share thoughts in such a way to keep people's attention and help them come to the right conclusion about the story in which they tell. You'll notice with most of the parables Jesus told, they're connected to a question that has either been verbally asked or somebody there is thinking it. And that one that we look at today is kind of both. Lyman Coleman says these parables would have challenged the original hearers to reconsider seriously their relationship to God and it will also cause us to do the same today. Now you may not know, but a third of the parables that Jesus, a third of the Bible, the recorded times of Jesus as he teaches are parables. And so he uses them regularly. But are they just a story or is there something more to them? See, parable comes from the Greek word parabole, which means to come, um, play, to come or place alongside. Or another easy way, it compares one thing to another. Or as I've kind of described it to my middle school students, it's an earthly story with a heavenly or kingdom meaning. I think when we look at parables, we, we need to make sure that we approach them in the right way because Jesus even said it was going to be difficult to understand them. And so we see in Matthew 13, 1 through 3, it says, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and a great crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables. And then we jump up to verse 10. It says, Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So the disciples have a little more insight than the world itself that are hearing these things. The world's not listening and Jesus is now teaching them, and we pick that up. For to the one who has, which is the disciples, more will be given, and he will have in an abundance. But from the one who has not, the one that is not understanding, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not fear, hear, nor do they understand. See, the disciples and the hearers of Jesus' parables didn't have really the complete picture of Jesus at the time. He had not died. He had not rose again. So they had a really a incomplete picture of the kingdom of God. And we see in Matthew 13, in the last part of that chapter, it says in verse 34, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fill, fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Well, where is that found? It's in Psalm 78. And it says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. 
I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Craig Bloomberg gives a great way to help us determine the overall purpose of a parable. He says it highlights God, period. And he says, but it takes on his love, his grace, and forgiveness. You'll typically see that lived out in almost any parable that Jesus teaches. The other thing he said is that it demands it demand, the demands that it is to follow Jesus, that it's not the easy path. It is the difficult road. But then he looks at it from the flip side and he says it's the dangers. He looks at the dangers of disobedience, of not following Christ. What will happen when you don't do what God has called you to do? But it also always highlights the kingdom of God and tells us a little bit of what it is like. And it also includes this idea of Jesus' deity, that he is God. Well, in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, you, you'll see a majority of Jesus' parables recorded. However, you'll see in Luke, there's 35 of them that he records, but only 19 of them are used somewhere else, or, or, or only, or, I'm sorry, that are only used in the book of Luke. I think it's important then for us to understand why would Luke include 19 of them? What, what did Luke want to say or to, when he's writing this to make sure we understood? Well, I think Luke, when you look at the book of Luke, I think he's trying to do three main things. He's trying to emphasize Jesus' humanity, that Jesus came down, the Word became flesh, I think he also he wants us to understand that he's the Son of Man, that he is not only the Son of God, but that he is here with us and that he is something unique. But I think he also then shows us that Jesus is about love, grace, and forgiveness. I guess, you know, when you think of Jesus and how he's described, he's a friend to sinners, to even those that seem beyond his help or don't think they deserve his help. Well, I think a few questions should always be asked when we read a parable. Otherwise, we may miss the true meaning or the point of the parable, which can easily be done. Just know that typically there is only one main point to a parable. Now, it may have many several or several sub-points that are helpful, but there is only one intended main point to a parable. So let's ask these questions to make sure that we are looking at it from the right perspective and then we're going to jump into this. Who is the intended audience and how would they have understood it? Uh, Basically what we want to do is get into the culture, the history, the settings and surroundings to kind of understand why why is Jesus sharing this at this time? What is going on? What, what, what is kind of surrounding this so that he would share this at this particular time? And, and then why would Luke want to record it? It would be like if we had no idea what a Pharisee was or a tax collector of those days, 
and then it's talked about in there, we would have no understanding of really the gravity or the depth of what Jesus is saying. And so it's important for us to get context, to know what's going on. And, and sometimes that takes a little bit more study than just reading the parable itself. It's looking at some of the footnotes and looking at some of the concordance references and, and those kind of things. And the second thing is, why did Jesus share the parable? And I'm gonna, that's what the, I'm going to get into. Uh, but why did the author include it? And that's what I kind of said earlier. He want, Luke wanted to emphasize Jesus' humanity, that he's the Son of Man. He's the one that forgives sin, that he's the one that extends grace. All right, so let's look at this parable of the two debtors, they call it. It's only two verses long. But what is significant is what's taking place before it and what's happening after it. And this parable is all about God's amazing grace. Luke is the only one that records this parable. This parable, we need to make sure we don't confuse this with another parable that has Jesus being anointed, and that's at Bethany. This is not the same one. Because Luke's the only one that records it, and the other Gospels do record the anointing at Bethany. The location of the parable is probably in or near uh, the town of Nain, which means lovely green pastures, which I looked up because I, I didn't know. Um, but it's in a good fertile area, and it's this, which is located kind of close to the Galilee and Samaria border, just kind of southwest of the Sea of Galilee. So let's pick up the story and, and, and when I say that, let's, let's see what's happening before we get to this parable. We, get, we, we find out that Jesus is in Nain. He's just healed or just brought back to life a widow's son. I'm sure word is spreading. John the Baptist gets wind of it, sends a few of his disciples to Jesus and his disciples to say, hey, are you the one? Essentially, I think he's just asking, are you the Messiah? Now remember, John had baptized him and said this, but Jesus was getting kind of maybe this, I don't know, uh, reputation of going to a lot of parties, going to places where there's just a lot of non-religious people. And, um, and so you've got this that's going on, but it would seem likely... That Simon, okay, and this is the Pharisee, you're going to get his name a little bit later, but Simon, this is not the disciple Peter, Simon Peter. It, it is not who's there. Simon, could have, Simon Peter could have been there. It doesn't say for sure. So let's not confuse that. But we have to figure Simon, this Pharisee, was probably well aware of all these things that had taken place. And what's unique about it is he would have probably heard about the healing and probably why he invited him to his home was because he's kind of, I would almost say, like a novelty. And so it says in verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, okay, is, is the one, is him here, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. Okay, you'd go, okay, just invited him, saw him, I'm going to invite him. Well, just so you know, in Jewish culture, it wasn't uncommon to just invite someone into your home um, for a meal. Uh, that, that culture was all about hospitality and inviting people in and sharing a meal and things with them. Well, Jesus ex obviously accepts the invitation because he's there. But most likely, I would say, some of the disciples are there as well with him because he would be traveling with them. But it's what we don't see in this verse 
and situation that becomes Jesus' focus of teaching about his grace and forgiveness. Just remember, it's what we don't see, and I'll explain that. But in verse 37, let's kind of go through the story. What, what is kind of this context? What's kind of going on here? And so we see in verse 37, And behold, a woman of the city, okay? Most likely all the commentaries will say it too, that this was a prostitute, a known prostitute. And it says, Who was a sinner? When she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Okay, this is not your customary olive oil, uh, which would have been prevalent and, and very plentiful in that area, but a very expensive perfume. It, it, it's, it says ointment, but it would have been something that could have been poured. It, you know, something that's it's thick enough, but it's not just like water. And standing behind him at his feet. Sorry if this bugs you. I always kind of like come in and then tell you something about it. But I think we're going at his feet. He's at the table. How does that work? Well, in Jewish custom, again, you would lay on your side at the table and your feet would be out. You'd almost be like a round, a round table. And it would almost look like a star because all the feet would be out, which is good at a meal because, you know, moms and dads say don't put your feet on the table. Uh, th- th- we don't want that. So this is good. But they're behind. And, th- and then it says, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And in this this weeping is not a weeping of mourning like you are so sad about something, but it's a weeping of unbelievable like appreciation, of gratitude. Like, I can't even, I can't, somebody gave you an amazing gift in, in, or somebody home, you know, for the holidays that you didn't expect to come or you haven't seen them for a while. And it is just so good to see them and be in their presence with them. And then it says, and wiped his feet, Jesus' feet, with the hair of her head. Well, again, here's another thing. She comes, her hair in the Jewish culture should have never been, it would have been bound up and most likely covered. Here, she just comes in and wets his feet with her tears, and then she's wiping it off and, and just like, I'm sorry, you know, I need to, because that's what you would traditionally do. And kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment which would have typically been done to the head, not the feet. Well, everything she did was done out of complete humility and without any concern for what others thought, only what Jesus thought. I'm not sure what your first question is when you read this, but mine was this. How did she get in the house? I mean, on top of that, how would she have access to Jesus and the honored guests that were there well i did a little looking to kind of see what was going on there and and in jewish culture again at these parties they would call them um, they were just public events and so in those days many homes of the leaders had open courtyards or areas in which they could uh, be together and the non-invited would then stand around and observe the people and the activities they couldn't participate but they could watch so in this case it doesn't appear there was anyone acting as a bouncer to keep people out. So anyone could attend, no matter their status. 
Now, in verse 39, we learn a little bit more. It says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, okay, so he's in his brain thinking this, not out loud, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Well, this verse, I think, gives us a a bit more of an insight of the Pharisee named Simon. We get a picture, I think, of Simon's heart. This is the second time in the passage that we learn more about Simon. Simon comments, if this man were a prophet. That's what he's thinking. He judged Jesus as someone under him, maybe not as good as him. You know, How could Jesus not recognize the signs that this woman is a sinner? Jesus imply, or Simon implies that just by the way she looks, she should have, should have been enough to tell of what kind of person she was. Well, Herbert Locklear in his book, All the Parables of the Bible, says this about Jesus. He says, Jesus did know the woman. He saw what Simon had failed to see, a yearning to be free from her past with all the sin and shame that came with it and accepted the actions of the woman because of what he knew of her. I'm not sure how Simon's feeling at this point. He's thinking these things. He could have been feeling pretty good because, you know what, there's no one at this party that could rival his righteousness or his devoutness. Or maybe he just felt disappointed going, what's this novelty, this guy Jesus? You know, why did I even invite him? What a waste of time. There's nothing special about him. Well, the next few verses, we see how Jesus had the ability to cut right to the point and address Simon's major issue, even though Simon had no way of knowing that Jesus knew what he was thinking. Kind of reminds me of what the Holy Spirit does in our lives, reveals things to us that maybe we didn't necessarily want revealed. But let's take a look at this in verse 40. And it says, And Jesus answered, And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. A denarii is equivalent about a day's wage. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, The one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. See, Jesus was not asking a trick question. There was an obvious answer. But you can tell in Simon's answer that he's a bit reluctant to share the obvious answer. He knew Jesus was a rabbi. And Jesus had just used a rabbi teaching technique that Simon would have been well aware of. So Simon was the one usually in control of these religious conversations But in this case, he didn't know where it was going to go. Well, he soon finds out that Jesus is talking about him. Jesus steps out of the parable and now he's going to bring it into real time and real application. And he says in verse 44 through 46, he says, Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, 
but she has anointed my feet with ointment. See, I would assume at this point, Simon has got to be just fuming inside. And Jesus is, because Jesus just called him out. But outwardly, we don't know if Simon is, you know, Jesus is speaking this loud enough for others or if this is more of a private conversation with Simon. But Simon's going to keep up his presence and he might even be nodding with Jesus, you know, as if it's this private conversation so that the guests don't get wind of it, of what just took place, what Jesus confronted him with. But before Simon even has a chance to respond, Jesus comes back around to address his own deity, Jesus' deity, him, his claim to be in God, which Simon had already questioned earlier as he rejected Jesus as a prophet. See, then Simon is directed to see who Jesus really is claiming to be. This is forcing the issue. Jesus is bringing it right to the apex. He says, the one that forgives sins, which for a Pharisee, the only one that could ultimately do that was God himself. So Jesus says to Simon in verses 47 and 49, says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. See, I would even say at this point, Simon may not have even caught the connection that Jesus is trying to make with him. And he said, see, in, in verse 47, what's interesting, he doesn't, Jesus doesn't claim to be the one that has forgiven these sins. So Simon's probably still okay with that. But what changes everything is these words in 48. And he said to her, looking at her, not looking at Simon anymore, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this that who, who, even forgives, who even forgives sins? Jesus makes it very clear that he has forgiven her sins. Not because of her acts of love, which are obviously the outflow of her heart of gratitude, but because of her faith in him. It also confirms that the woman's faith in, in, uh, came first and her response is a result of the freedom or the peace that she now has in Christ himself. It would appear that the woman would have heard Jesus speaking or seen him heal just as Simon had. But her response is completely different than Simon's. The sad part is we see no response from Simon to acknowledge his own sin. In verse 50 it says, And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You know, we must remember that we needed and still need Jesus' love, His mercy, His grace, His forgiveness. I was reading a passage in Genesis 32 where Jacob is about to go meet his brother, which he's pretty sure Esau wants to kill him uh, because of what he'd done. And he's praying and he says, he prays this, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. Jacob is just saying, man, I have, you have given me so much, but I'm at this moment in my life where my life could be on the line and I'm realizing now that I'm really a sinner. 
And we see this as Jacob uses the word least to describe himself. See, when we realize the depth of our sinfulness, I think it helps us appreciate Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for our sins and, and his grace even more. See, Jacob also knew that God was the only one that had the authority and power to deliver him. My question to you is, do you believe that? That Jesus is the only one that has the power and authority? In Luke 18, we see Jesus tell a parable that again has a tax collector, and this time a, um, a tax collector and a Pharisee. But Dr. Luke records Jesus' final words in that parable because this is a good parallel one. It's a similar story that should be a great reminder to us. In verse 13 of Luke um, 18, it just says, But the tax collector, standing far off, would not lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Another uh, passage you can see the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 5, 1 and 2 if you want to look at more about that justification. What does that look like? So when you think of your life before Christ, do you look more like Simon the Pharisee that knew he was a sinner but figured he was pretty good in comparison to the others around him? And didn't he, he didn't have any, and not having any kind of an appreciation or gratitude toward what Christ did on the cross for, his for, for him to be forgiven of his sins? Or are we more like the woman that understands the gravity of her sin and her fallenness? In Romans 3.23 and 24, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But listen, verse 24, how exciting is this? and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You know, do we appreciate this gift of grace from God? You know, do we live in the gratitude for what, he, what He's done for us? I mean, having Thanksgiving, we, we have an opportunity to be thankful, but is, is our heart thankful Beyond that, even in the tough times and the difficult times, are we thankful for the cross where Jesus died on that for us? We need to be every day because it is what brings us hope, true hope, true peace, and his awesome power. I want you to watch this video. I think it will encourage you. Our default position as strugglers is to believe that God's disappointed and frustrated. That He simply is tolerating us. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1 says, No, 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 no. Before the foundation of the earth was laid, He was going to adopt you, make you holy and blameless in His sight. So whether difficult days or good days, God's at work. God has not abandoned you in this difficult season. How amazing does that make our God that in our hypocrisy He's long-suffering with us? 
in our inability to live out all that He would call us to. He continues to lavish upon us His grace. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So I love this word lavish, extravagant, plentiful, over the top. And so now when the Bible's talking about forgiveness, it's saying that His grace in forgiveness is lavish. Like it's too much. Like it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous amount, right? It's, it's, it's weight. It's over the top. It's out of control. Man of woman of God, in Christ but struggling, God does not regret saving you. He doesn't regret it. You haven't surprised Him. You cannot surprise Him. God is not watching where you are now, watching how you've struggled this week, watching how you stumble and fall, and regretting the decision to pay the price for you and for us. You have no sin past present and future that has more power than the cross of Jesus Christ. None. This means that your salvation wasn't just a past event alone, but that Christ even now is continuing to save you. He didn't forgive your past sins and now leaving it up to you to conquer present and future sins. Which means it doesn't matter how you came in here. It means God can rescue. It means God can save. And it means for those of us who are in Christ, you do not disgust Him. You do not discuss it. You don't know what I struggle with and how deplorable it is. Um, I know that it, Jesus would say that he paid the bill in full. And so what you're saying is nonsense. That is the grace with which he lavished on us in his forgiveness. So my question to you is, how can we lavish Christ's love into this world. And I think many of you are going by extending Christ-like grace and forgiveness. I would challenge you to pray and, and think about who that might be. Maybe there is somebody that you need to just let something go and be done with it not hold on to it any longer, not to be held by the bondage of it. Because when we don't forgive, when we don't extend grace, we are truly not being a disciple of Christ. When we extend that, we don't judge. And man, we got to fight that. It's hard at times because it makes us feel better. But I would just ask you guys to consider, what does that look like for you? Is there somebody that you need to extend grace to? Is there somebody that you maybe need to go to and ask for forgiveness? But don't make it conditional. Do what God's called you to do. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, we thank you for paying the bill of our sin in full and for lavishing your love and forgiveness on us even though we have no right to it in our own. It's only through your death on the cross, your shed blood, that we are forgiven. You have broken the chains of bondage and you allow us to live in the freedom 
that we can have only through you. Thank you for accepting us and calling us your child, your friend, a saint, one that is fully complete in you alone. Amen.